The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Holiday islands ablaze. Global heat records falling every day. And scientists confident these extreme weather events are linked to climate change caused by humans. Have we now reached a point of no return where even limiting global heating up to one and a half degrees C is no longer achievable? Is the world unable or unwilling to do what's necessary? And are we just going to have to learn to live with a much warmer planet with all that brings? Is it now too late to take us back from the brink of climate catastrophe. That's this week on The Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. So, Roger, what is the hottest you've ever experienced? Oh, gosh. The hottest uh, temperature? Jericho, right. which is uh, near the Dead Sea. Yeah. Over 50 degrees, 51 or 52. Right. And I think when I was on the Iraq-Kuwait border, it was about the same. We tried to f- b- fry an egg on the, on the car, but we couldn't find an egg. <laughs> so I've been in Sydney when it's been 50 or oh, yeah. certainly 49 and a half oh. or something like that. And that is crazy. I mean, yeah. it was like, uh, you know, it used to be that you'd get one day a year, yeah. perhaps where it got over 40 degrees and it's now nudging up to another and level. you can't so, live in those conditions. You can't. Well, when people do manage to, but it's, and it's okay if you get it for a day or two. Mm. Uh, and it's normally only for a day in Sydney yeah. where you get crazy temperatures like that. But we're starting to see now, aren't we? Just sort of like well, the headlines days. are very, very alarming. And uh, we've seen people suggesting that you know, maybe we're just at that moment where the things that we feared are coming through more obviously or is it just you know El Nino or something pushing it around a bit well, 19, this summer yeah 1976 of course we all remember that don't we as though yeah. that was the only decent summer Britain ever had mm. uh, and it was the Minister hotter, for Drought do you remember the, that? I do uh, who actually also then became the the, the Minister for uh, for, for Floods <laughs> shortly after and then the Minister for Sport focusing on swimming presumably yeah that was uh, Dennis Howell was his gosh name. there's a name yeah. from the past yeah. so yeah that was 1976 was supposedly the hottest mm. uh, for 350 years Years. Yeah, it, but it got to thirty-six degrees one day in Cheltenham. You know that. Was, <laughs> so it, we'd look we back panicked, rather funny. Yes. I mean, there were quite a few days. There were sixteen days over thirty degrees centigrade. So, but we've got hotter mm. since then. Yet we still look back on it. But the question is, isn't it? You know, how much of it is weather and how much of it is climate? Well, this change? is because you know we're talking about heat, obviously, in the Mediterranean at the moment and in the southern US. But at the same time, you've got extreme monsoon rains in India. You've got extreme heat in China. You know, and we were complaining about extreme cold, obviously, a few months ago. Now, are we just really seeing not not overall heating it's not the climate warming as such in terms of oh yes it's hot oh yes it's cold it's the change in the climate itself which mm. is getting us to the point where things happen that they happened before but just more yeah and do we and does it move faster because we start to hit tipping well, points this where, is what we don't know tipping yeah. points is the key because yeah. we've talked about them and, and, and scientists award over 1.5 degrees celsius we're going to see a lot of that and then it may be well some say almost unstoppable a chain reaction perhaps yeah so um, we need to do something but yeah. look, we you can't single-handedly protect the planet perhaps he needs group action but you can single-handedly protect your assets and your investments you'll be pleased to know because the impact of mm. climate change is just one factor that's going to determine the value of you know those investments that you have uh, but we've also seen inflation we've seen covid there's many other factors that obviously uh, influence you need uh, to have someone who can ride these storms and understand it all so your wealth needs to be managed by experts and we suggest 
Wigmore Associates are the people to do that. They seem like terrific people. Uh, they know what they do, clearly. And just coincidentally, they happen to be supporters of this podcast. They make it possible. So uh, they pay for that. So uh, so they're showing great taste, they are. aren't they? So look, contact them at wigmore-associates.co.uk. Their email is on the website too, or call them on 020-7224-3400 and uh, get your life sorted out, basically. Indeed. Get your finances sorted out with Wigmore Associates. Something, of course, that you can't necessarily get sorted out is how the climate's going to affect <laughs> all that, inevitably. But we found someone who can at least give us some good advice and some good insight into the science. And he's Tim Lenton, founder of the Global Systems Institute and chair of Climate Change and Earth System Science at the University of Exeter. And he joins us now. So, Tim, we, we have this amazing heat in southern Europe and this remarkably unimpressive July that we're seeing in Britain at the moment. Of course, we had, the, I think it was the hottest ever June. Mm. So there's always uh, records being broken. And the question, obviously, is how much of this is weather and how much of it is is the El Nino effect that we keep on hearing about and how much of it is climate change per se? And, and the extent to which we can say, given all the headlines that we've, we've had mm. and seen about... Uh, world on fire i suppose is the way the image people get how much of that is telling us that the things we thought we could do to reduce uh climate change uh, we've gone beyond a point where that's possible to make an awful lot of difference where would you say we are in all this there's at least six questions there tim so take your <laughs> yeah well so if we start with the extraordinary extremes mm. they are of course a combination of the fact that um, in the background, the global warming has kept creeping up. But on top of that, we now find ourselves in the onset of what is most likely to be a fairly strong El Nino. And we might also argue that as global warming increases, the extremes don't just kind of increase in proportion to the warming. So even without the El Nino, we're seeing evidence that at least the extremes and the damages associated with the extremes are going up what we would call non-linearly. So it's like a perfect storm, perhaps, if you put the El Nino on top of that. And that might be why we're seeing these completely off-the-scale events in terms of how far the sea surface temperatures are outside of normal variability at various times in bits of the North Atlantic or the Mediterranean, and how crazy the Antarctic sea ice cover changes are. These are statistically, we're talking about in some cases what might be one in many tens or hundreds of millions of years kind of uh, extremes. So you're really looking at the possibility now that we are starting to sample some other kind of regime of the weather or variability um, that's being that's being influenced by the climate change. But the El Nino is a very convenient excuse, isn't it, for people who want to deny that we are having climate change. Yeah, that, uh, and I don't think they can pull that card in a sort of um, scientifically rigorous way because we've had past El Nino's, a really big one in 1998, uh, but we can see um, extremes already now uh, that we didn't see then in simple terms. So... Uh, once we've lived through this El Nino, it'll be even clearer in a sense. Um, you know, okay, aspects of the pattern of change are the El Nino pattern of change, but some some levels of extremity of the extremes are not clearly not just the El Nino. They're the El Nino on top of quite a bit of warming um, since since back then. 
And so you asked, oh, are we now like we're seeing things we we can no longer avoid? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course. Good memory. I was going to remind you of that because we did ask you every <laughs> single question we could ask you in the half hour interview right at the beginning. Yeah, but yeah, have we gone too far? Absolutely. Well, it doesn't, the- I mean, the, the point really is, yeah, we're now starting to see some things that it would have been nice to avoid, but we're not we're not avoiding. Uh, but the, the bigger point is there are some other nastier things down the tracks that we could still avoid. So the way to look at the the shock of the now, and talking to my friends and other journalists in Greece just before the weekend as it was heading for 47 degrees C outside, and it was just horrendous. Um, the, the message to take from this is it's like a little window of what will become the norm if, uh, if we don't uh, accelerate action to reduce global warming. And then once it's become the norm, this will seem like a, a nice year if we just carried on on the current trajectory. Well, I was so- going to ask about the norm thing you mentioned there, because we, we, the way it's been presented to us to say, well, look, if we hold temperatures to an increase of 1.5 degrees Celsius, if we can do that, then these things will happen, but we will avoid these other things. So we'll have a norm, but it won't be the norm that we, we thought would be bad. But there's some suggestion now that that, that is an unrealistic uh, aim that we actually are not going to make that uh, of right. 1.5. And if we don't, where does the new norm come in? Well, exactly. So is, there is indeed a, a, a closing window of possibility of holding the line at 1.5 degrees C. Many people would say it's near, it's near as impossible as to just call it that. Um, do you think it's quite, impossible, or do you think it? No, it's I still- don't. But we have to get. We would have to get lucky. We'd have to get lucky with the sensitivity of the climate to our greenhouse gas emissions and concentrations, as well as for us have to act uh, more decisively to accelerate the change to net zero. So there's a lot of ifs and buts in that. But we could we could make we could make a heroic acceleration of action, and we see some positive signs of that. And then we might get lucky, but we'd have to get pretty lucky on what we call climate sensitivity. Um, the problem here is there's inertia in a lot of inertia in the climate. Well, the fact that the world's warming up is because more heat's kind of trapped in than is getting escaping the planet. And the only way that it can find what we call energy balance is for the big store of heat and the temperature of the ocean to go up until more radiation is going out to space to match that coming in. So it's like any warm body. If it warms up more, it can emit more radiation. And that's the way the planet, if you like, tries to refine the balance. Um, But it's out of balance. It's about on average one watt per meter squared out of balance and how much it has to warm up to get back into balance um, is quite uncertain, um, but not zero is is the clear answer. So that's why we would say we're already committed to something like at least one point five degrees C of warming. So but to get it back to get it back into balance, then what do we have to do? We we have, we have to, to the best the best thing we can do is try is is shut down um, greenhouse gas emissions, which in simple terms is shut down fossil fuel burning and replace it with renewable energy as well as stop deforesting and start sort of regenerating forests and nature um, as quickly as we can. I was going to say, what sort of time scale? Because obviously that is an intention already in place in many countries. It is, and and it's an intention that if we wanted to, we have to do that 
before by or before 2050 to have any dwindling hope of holding the line at 1.5 degrees C. So I've then done some calculations myself of how how much speed up that requires um, in all of the relevant realms of action. It's now more than a factor of five speed up in what we call decarbonizing the economy, which is like the rate at which we reduce emissions per unit of kind of economic output. Um, so we've got a lot of work to do. Um, we can talk about some some encouraging signs that we are accelerating the the change, but still not nearly enough or globally enough. It, it sounds it, it sounds a bit like you know sort of one of those uh, dodgy business models that you see from startups that say they're going to make uh, X million. And uh, we're not going to make anything at all for the first three years. And then all of a sudden in the fourth year, everything is going to explode. And that's where all the money comes in. In other words, we're going to do nothing for three years. And then you have an un- unrealistic expectation of where you go next. Are we are we doing that? There's a bit of a risk because if you actually look at the trajectories of emissions that were drawn up to sort of try and make a an estimate of when we should get to net zero, they had a real uh, kink in the graph. So you have like, picture this graph of rising greenhouse gas emissions. They've actually now roughly stabilized, which is a good, which is a start, but then they would immediately start reducing at say 7% per year, year on year, and carry on doing that all the way to 2050. Well, the only we dropped emissions globally in the pandemic 2020 with when we all stopped traveling basically by mm. 5% globally. So we're talking about <laughs> doing that, doing more than that every year, year on year. There's no way we're going to go from, unless we have another worse pandemic, there's no way we're going to go from. That goes on for 30 years. Yeah. So instead, you've got to imagine like an S curve. You've got to bend, you've got to bend the curve downwards and so that it's accelerating downwards all the time and that's the calculation i've been working on and that requires you know uh, a knowledge that there is exponential growth of the alternative technologies of, of solar panels of wind turbines etc and we know what the rate of exponential growth is and we can project that forwards and then we can see a reason for hope that we will really be able to accelerate the reduction in emissions and then we can get into a discussion about is it fast enough and what could get in the way and what could speed it up because <laughs> lots of things can uh, influence it either way. Well, poli- politics would be part of that, wouldn't it? Yes. So I'm, I'm well, sure and we, international we... politics, because one of the things in all this, which you, you hear the argument, I'm sure, again and again, is it's whatever we do. In a way, what even the US does, what countries like China and India do is a far greater yeah. significance. Well, well, that's a sort of classic uh, Western kind of perception mm. cop-out argument, to be frank, because we're all living in the same globalised economy. And instead, what's actually happening is good old President Biden is... Um, put, managed to pull off the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which is like a massive stimulus package for for the green economy, for renewables, for green hydrogen and for everything else, and kind of rips, partly rips up the global trade book. And of course, EU and the China sort of squawk a bit about that. But what it effectively does is it starts a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom, because China itself has got all sorts of stimulus packages and efforts to push um push the green economy in fact they're the ones who are making 
solar panels the cheapest uh, way of generating power in the world, you know. And so there's a bit of the usual political ding-dong and murmurings, but actually we're seeing some quite positive signs that despite the sort of competitive nature of that space, instead of kind of kind of competing to not act, we're now seeing a different dynamic, which is almost like competing to, to be the first movers and the ones who will win by being in the lead in this transition or at least that's the opti- the more optimistic view yeah that's, that's that's into that list of things you said there are reasons to be hopeful yeah before we get onto that though i mean just talking about i mean politics might be part of it but there's there's also just the general public attitude right. so i just spent a week in the united states in michigan and okay it's sort of like motor city you know so obviously people love their cars there their cars are massive they have no intention of of downscaling them. They, uh, they, you know, everything is big. This is the consumer society that's not going to change its behavior. I guess, I, I guess that, but you know, maybe we can keep that that level of consumption up if we can find renewables. And, and here, the, 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 on the slightly more minor political scale, you had a by election which seems to convince both major parties that pushing for the ULES in London, the ultra low emission zone, is politically uh, disastrous. So they're backing off from it. So like we want to preserve the climate as so long as it doesn't impact us. Well, of course there is, especially in short short term politics, and they should. You know, both parties, major parties should be ashamed of themselves because we've got uh, a legally binding climate change act that, um, uh, that we, we are, we have been and we need to continue to follow through on. And yeah, of course, there are these kind of short term myopic um, responses and a profound lack of true leadership in our politics. Um, so, so be it, but. we've lived through a time when politics ceded power to finance and deregulated the markets anyway. So you could take a different view of the world that whether you like it or not, um, kind of finance business, um, they're, they're more in the driving seat, but there that's where um, the big money is being made in wind turbines or Tesla shares or or the transition, basically. Um, and we, the consumer, can decide, you know, what kind of car to buy. Now, of course, if we if we could get into a culture of reducing consumption, that would help. But there is also this viable option to substitute um, the fossil fueled um, pickup truck with the electric one. Um, that's not a perfect change, but it's a big improvement from a climate point of view. Yeah, so, political decisions are they getting followed through on, I guess, and, um, because it's all short termism, isn't it? But you made the point that, that a lot of it is the, the investment is coming from, uh, from the finance sector. So, I mean, can we get through this? Can we, I mean, you tend to think, well, maybe there needs to be more political intervention, but can we get through this sort of with you know the more laissez-faire economic model that the west has adopted the truth is we'd be getting through it the most effectively with a kind of uh, unholy or holy alliance of some sensible governance and use of public money um, and governance together with um, private capital and arguably the best cases of progress so far, the fact that solar panels cost 10% of what they did 10 years ago, and the same is true for the batteries and electric vehicles and for wind turbines, all trace back to the combination of its kind of um, forward-looking public policy and public investment that starts off the solutions. And then later on, um, the private markets pick them up. Um, so 
yeah, that's the honest answer. We want we want a good combination of both, and a completely laissez-faire approach uh, often often fails because you have to have you have to regulate at some point. Um, but sometimes actually regulating and having something called an industrial strategy is good for everybody, including good for business. I mean, it's it's patently obvious. I would say that you know, let the try and let the market solve everything, and you get all kinds of pathologies as we've we've lived through. So yeah, then it varies from context to context. In Britain, we're sort of lumbered with this kind of neoliberal. Um, uh, political economy ideology, arguably now more than the US under Biden, who has just, as I said, you know, kind of committed a, a billion, however many, God, 900, sorry, 900 billion stimulus package for the green transition. And they're going great guns. And all the evidence is it's good for growth, good for the real economy, good for jobs, etc. So, so we're the laggards. So talking about neoliberalism, so William Nordhaus was uh, <laughs> one a Nobel Prize-winning economist from Yale yeah. University. Yeah. Supposedly he won the Nobel Prize because well, of his work on climate change. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, in 2018 he won the joint prize. Let me just quote something from him. He basically reckons three degrees of warming would reduce global GDP by just 2.1% compared to what would happen if we didn't have climate change. Even six degrees increase in global temperature. And it'd be interesting to see what you think would happen if we saw a six degree rise. He reckons that would reduce GDP by just about uh, 8.5%. Uh, what would happen if temperatures increased by six degrees? A lot of us wouldn't be around, would we? Correct. In fact, I, I think... Um like all bets are off and everything could break down at three degrees C of global warming. So obviously I I differ fundamentally with Bill Nordhaus. We don't we've haven't ever met in person. We've been in the same meeting online a couple of times. You'd be surprised how he's kind of a calm and charming kind of academic, really. But he's in my view, we are we've got this wild kind of discrepancy between what people like me in climate science think the risks are that we're running and those numbers that Nordhaus and others have come up with. But, but that's the problem, isn't it? Because if, 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 if people would look and say, well, he's a Nobel Prize winning economist, he must know what he's talking about. I mean, his reasoning is that businesses would continue because you're just because you're carrying on indoors. You but he knows care. the economics, oh, he doesn't this, know the science. He's, but it's, he's, but it's, the economics is wrong, clearly. If the, if the population has dwindled to such a degree, you're not going to lose 8.5% of GDP. If the population mm. of the planet halves, then you've at least halved your GDP. Precisely, because among the many highly questionable assumptions that basically get baked into that calculation, which is essentially, if I'm blunt, a made-up number. It is a made-up number. Um, but in his model, population is, we call it exogenous. He's just prescribed what the population is going to do as one of the major components of total factor productivity, as the economists call it. He's presumed that climate can't possibly damage or any sector of the economy except activities of people working outside, farming, mining, few few other things. This is already disproven by other economists who show fascinating results about how we're all and influenced by climate and our labour productivity is affected, even when we're working in air-conditioned factories when it's extreme heat outside. Presumably because we don't, you know, we don't live in the factory, and you know, there's other things, <laughs> other things go going coaching, on. Yeah. So and there's got to be people to buy those things that the factory is making. And, and just just for clarity, it's not the Nobel Prize in economics. It's the Swedish um, um, sovereign banks. Um, 
prize in memory of Alfred Nobel because Alfred wow. Nobel thought very little of economics and, mm. and said quite clearly in his will that he did and that he didn't support a prize in this area. And his family have upheld those wishes. So yeah. for, for decades, they have opposed, they opposed uh, because basically, uh, and I agree with him, Nobel didn't think that economics was a pro proper science. Yes, <laughs> I can hear some screaming at the radio going on somewhere in the background. But yes, no, I mean, economics is a well, Obviously, that, but, I should clarify yeah. that there are some great economists out there, but mm. and it's a very diverse field. Yeah. Uh, but I would say there's a subset of macroeconomists looking at climate, and Nordhaus is one of them, who who are misleading us all profoundly yeah. um, about yeah. uh, major risks. Well, the, reason, the reason I mention that is because if, if we want it to be part of the political discourse going forward, and it, I feel like it's getting sidelined a little bit because we've had the pandemic and now we've got inflation and so climate change sort of goes down a couple of notches in our list of concerns. Uh, without some hard numbers as to what this is going to do for the economy, oh. it's hard for banks to start putting numbers into their spreadsheets yeah, saying, yeah, this is we, why we've got to do stuff. But that comes down to the science, and, and there's where people like you come in, because you you know, or you can work out the kind of implications of these things, the likely outcomes. But I wanted to drill into that, because how convinced are we all that the number, that the, the, the 1.5 or the 3 mm. degrees or whatever it is, do we really know at each level how this works? Because climate is an incredibly complicated mechanism, isn't it? Sure, sure. We all admit, those of us working on it, that we're dealing with a, a complex system, um, both the climate and the economy and how we're coupled together. But, you know, for example, my own work, I've got a couple of uh, fronts of it that relate to this. So I've spent at least 15 years mapping out well, where where are the tipping points in the climate and what level of temperature could they be? Could we tip uh, abrupt and or irreversible changes like the starting the loss of major ice sheets or disruption of the monsoons or the ocean circulation or, or the loss of the Amazon rainforest and so on? Short, long story short, um, Above 1.5 degrees C of global warming, there are four of four quite major climate tipping points that start to look as likely as not, um, including abrupt thawing of large parts of the permafrost, releasing more carbon to the atmosphere, um, and triggering the breakdown over the Greenland and the West Antarctic ice sheets. Then, so I think at that point, everything just escalates. Well, it, it, it's hard to stop. You might still be able to slow down the rate, for, exa for example, the rate at which the ice sheets are melting. But for sure, you've then committed not only to a much more sea level rise in the long run, but the sea level is rising faster from the ice sheets. Um, and so then there's another line of work I've done, published on recently, which is just to ask simple questions about how many people are going to be pushed into climate, hot climate conditions that are pretty unprecedented historically, and we know for various reasons that can be directly damaging to health and welfare and productivity and so on. And when we look at a world that's going on the current policy trajectory to something like nearly three degrees C of warming later this century, the world that Bill Nordhaus and others say we should go towards because that's the optimum level of warming. Well, we calculate over 2 billion people exposed to extreme heat and the associated harms and several more billion who are put at sort of living um, in their population densities that don't fit well with the climate they're now living in based on history that, you know, historically those climates didn't support such 
dense habitation. Not to say it's impossible, but it just becomes obvious that it would put ourselves into a world where there are massive challenges for at least a third, if not half, of the total population. And then, then it's just, you have to just, uh, we don't have the models yet to play it through, but it's not hard to start thinking about, oh my word, you know, we've also halved the area for growing major staple crops like wheat and maize. It's not hard to think through the kind of horror scenarios of how that might play out in a three degree well, world. In in lots of different ways, not just necessary for them, but the knock on effects, Precisely. population move and everything else. But, what, but with this, you, you said over 1.5 uh, degrees that's kind of, these certain tipping points might will come in but can we be sure they won't come in that it's as neat as that that they won't come in no we that? can't we can't be sure and in fact we published as a group called the earth commission recently that we we really see the evidence of a the evidence that substantial numbers of people are being directly harmed by climate change now but B, we can't rule out that we might have passed the tipping point for part of the West Antarctic ice sheet at the current level of sort of 1.25 maybe degrees centigrade of warming. And that, and that in round numbers, maybe we got into the danger zone when we crossed about one degree C of global warming. Mm. Um, when was that? When would that have been? Well, we have to define this as a sort of climate average. So the average of sort of 30 years centred on 2010, something like that. Um so 2010-ish, you know, was about one degree C above pre-industrial. But and at that point, that one degree, uh, presumably now we're seeing that because there'll be a lag effect in all of this, won't there? So whatever the wherever we are yeah. now, the, the impact that we're seeing now will be the lag effect Precisely. from what's gone before. So if you do cross a like an ice sheet tipping point, you don't suddenly get get the ice sheet disappear. It, luckily, it takes, you know, you've got a lot of ice to melt and you have to put a lot of energy in to melt a lot of ice. But you do you make commitments, as it were, that start to unfold. And, and sure enough, we've seen the contribution of Antarctic ice melting to the global sea level rise accelerate in the last decade or so. We've seen the same for Greenland. So we can't rule out that both those ice sheets are, are showing us that they're now on the way out. Um, but and the implications of that would be potentially changes in sea temperature globally, for example. Well, yes, sea level is, is a crucial one as well. And then the meltwater coming off Greenland is interfering with the great overturning circulation of the Atlantic, which is the great connector of the climate system. It ties to the climate here in Europe, but it mm. affects where the big rainfall band all around the tropics or the monsoons, how they... Find so the recent thing, a concern about very hot seawater around the UK and I think around the eastern US coast as well that, that received mm. a lot of publicity would that be could that be part of that as well well the way to think about that is that is a shorter term variability but it's an example of how the variability of in this case sea surface temperature has just gone absolutely crazy this year we're seeing variations that are just unprecedented and one of the signals of a system approaching a tipping point one of the most general signals is you get increased variability before it kind of starts its tip into some other state and there's a paper published this week which you know has its has a crit much critical reflection going on on it as well quite rightly but there's a paper published this week that's saying look we might already have the early warning signals of destabilization of the atlantic's great overturning circulation one of the ways one of the signals you see there is not just that the overall average strength of the circulation has been getting weaker which it has but that you expect the variability of of 
sea surface temperatures in a particular region of Canada and south of Greenland to be going up a lot. And sure enough, that's what you can see right now in the maps for this month, at least. You can see a wild excursion there. So it's a, that's just an extreme event. But, but the pattern of those extreme events could be a clue to something deeper and longer and more fundamental. So we may already, I mean, to put it in its crudest terms, we may already have gone past the point of no return in one or two areas. And whether we stick to 1.5 or not, that is already uh, done and done. I wonder whether we've seen the, you know, the public perception changing as well. I mean, there's always climate change deniers. I mean, they're still around. They haven't changed their tune. Uh, But we've also got people who think, yeah, well, you know, climate change is happening, who are saying now it is too late. Maybe we should be focusing on preparing ourselves for what's coming down the road. It isn't too late i mean if i gave i give you know your scientists sign a scientist you give a sort of your your best estimate okay we might have passed a couple of those ice sheet tipping points and our only option there is to just try and slow the meltdown we aren't in my my estimation we're not yet at the lots of other bigger and more damaging and faster unfolding tipping points so we've got plenty to play for to sort of try and limit the risk of crossing those so i don't want people to just get a kind of nihilism and despair when they see what's happening they need to know that yeah some bad stuff is kicking off but there's way worse stuff that would would kick off at higher temperatures if we choose to go there but we can choose not to Mm. Um, My my point is, though, just wonder whether I hear what you're saying, but whether people are thinking, uh, I just wonder whether it's gone too far. And, you know, I'm I'm in southern Italy or I'm in Brisbane in Queensland or whatever. And I'm I'm seeing temperatures over 40 and thinking I've got to get air conditioning put in now. People are definitely thinking, oh, my God, those climate scientists were right because they're full in my inbox and the world's media Mm -hmm. are as well. And that. That, so we are maybe we're finally getting the wake up call that several of us have been trying to issue for a while, um, mm. and there will totally understandably all of us as humans, especially those on the sharp end of this, are going to be finding ways to adapt what, what, with whatever means they have. That's one of our qualities as a species. We're highly adaptable, um, and that's all to the good. I mean, that's 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 absolutely right, and that's absolutely right. what. But if it, but if it consumes more energy, and you know, it is well, air conditioning, and we're we're adding to greenhouse gases, then that is a slight. Ri- that is a slight issue. The cooling demand does indeed go up um, if if you try to meet it with air conditioning. It does. It's an effect. It's it's not like the dominant effect. But there are other ways you can. We could practically cool things down. I mean, we've just been doing, we've just submitted a paper on how much potential there is for more green space in cities, especially in the global south, to shave off the horrendous heat extremes from the mixture of global warming and so-called urban heat islands. So, yeah, some of the technologies add to the problem, but other options uh, don't, and they have co-benefits. So that's all about, yeah, are we are we smart in how in our adaptation adaptation options? <laughs> See, yeah. you mentioned some good signs. <laughs> a long yeah, way back. We, we, a long, long way, way back. back. And we're getting near the end, so we don't want to end in an optimistic tone. So what, what, what are the positives that we can take out from where we are today? Well, the direct evidence that there have been what I call positive tipping points, at least at country level, in the, in the switch to sustainable sources of energy and ways of using it. So in the UK, 40% of our power like electricity came from coal burning in 2012. It's about 1% now, and that, that that got shut down really fast without, I don't think, anybody really noticing. Um, 
in Norway, they went from electric vehicles went from sort of a few percent market share 10 or so years ago to 84% market share at the moment. So a decade or timescale tipping points towards the much cleaner sources of power and new technologies. And there's evidence we've got from my own group that those tipping points are spreading. There's exponential growth of solar power and wind power worldwide. There's exponential growth of the electric vehicle fleet. Um, what we need to do is work out, okay, how can we trigger what I call these positive tipping points in other sectors? And, and uh, yeah, there's plenty of work to do there, but Give us an example of what those other sectors might be. Well, there, there, for example, they could be the rise of alternative proteins or plant-based meat substitutes and fungal-based meat substitutes. That means suddenly um, we we reduce the the kind of very inefficient um, rearing of livestock. That's basically basically a bit of a climate disaster and also a biodiversity disaster. Um, and then in other sectors, we're talking about how do we heat our homes? So the government's got to come and help here with the capital outlay for uh, heat exchangers. And we've got to train up more you know, people to install heat exchangers to replace our gas boilers. But it's all the technology's there. It's doable in the long run. It's, yeah. it's saving the consumer money. So heating our homes is a big deal. Other forms of transport like electrifying the truck fleet is important um then yeah these are all just to interrupt you but all these are all things we obviously that could go forward that 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 are perhaps going forward but i suppose in the end the positive sign you've got to look for is actually in the science in our testing of the atmosphere to actually see a downturn to actually see things turning back on themselves are we seeing any of that at the moment uh, no, and we shouldn't expect to because um, we haven't done the necessary, as it were. Um, what we have seen is that the uh, overall emissions of greenhouse gases have stabilised. So once you hold the line of emissions, so they're at a steady level, then you should expect the concentration of the greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, etc., should still be going up because you're still putting more in than you're taking out. But at least it will be going up at a steady rate and not an exponential rate. And we do see that. We see that begin to see that response just as we'd expect but if we want the concentrations to stabilize we have to bring the emissions down eventually down to zero and and that's so that's straight that's to, to me at least the straightforward science that we've been trying try to explain yeah. and that's why we need to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions as yeah. soon as possible so we can then start to see the expected consequences the the concentrations of the key greenhouse gas, CO2, methane, and so on, instead of keeping on rising, or you can stabilise them and then ultimately bring them down. But I'm afraid it doesn't happen overnight. Um, so I've had one, one, one argument, just quickly before we go, that uh, to, to speed up the process of switching to renewables, we perhaps need to step up our fossil fuel use in the short term to build the stuff which is going to speed up the, uh-huh. the delivery of those renewables. <laughs> now, this is probably someone in the fossil fuel industry who is arguing that, but you I mean, the, the, you know, the, the case was made, it, the quickest way to make, uh, you know, wind farms probably involves fossil fuels. And if you say, well, yeah. okay, we're going to commit to five years of that, we'll have more wind farms it's built sort of, faster, it, so we'll see a shorter it, term benefit. It's sort of, it's sort of semi what's happening anyway, right? Because mm. worldwide, fossil fuels are still the predominant source of energy so there's nothing that's not a novel there's nothing novel in that argument that's exactly what has been happening. happening 
Although over time it's changing because we are starting to decarbonize at least the power supply, the electricity supply, and the electricity is used in quite a lot of that manufacturing. So then you get into a virtuous cycle, as it were. You're um, you're cleaning up the power source that you're using to make more power of the power source. Yeah. You're so, cleaning up something with with something that's clean. Exactly, you're making clean your clean energy generation with clean energy, and we're, we're going. You know, it depends on the country, but look at Denmark. I mean, that's got the major uh, major exporter of the wind, the big wind turbines and the wind turbine blades. And I forget the exact figure, but something like at least fifty percent of its power is from from its own wind resource. Probably more than that now. Um, we are pushing on up. Um, we're not quite there yet at their level, but we're we're by 2030 with the push for 50 gigawatts of offshore wind power. We'll be getting towards that, you know, half of our power from renewables, and we'll just keep. And if we're smart, we'll just keep on going because ah, it's giving us smart. that if if we, well, yeah, we excuse, but it's the raw economics of it at the end of the day because renewables are now the cheapest source of power pretty much everywhere and they're only going to get cheaper and they're creating a world we've never seen before because the cost of power generation from fossil fuels didn't really budge in real terms for over a century so we're actually heading to a cheaper cheaper electricity future and that's a big incentive so you say the economics of it let's hope it's not the Nordhaus economics of it it's not the crazy crazy economics of miscalculating the risk it's the it's the real economy of yeah. a time of transformation of new jobs new opportunities new wealth and well-being in in the transformation it's you know what some people call the green new deal referring back to how the us tried to extract itself from the great depression you know nearly a century ago yeah. yeah, we should be doing the same again. And making Absolutely. sure we're all around to enjoy it, which Tim, is good. You've, you've ended on a high note, which is good. And I feel like we've only just scraped the surface, which means we'll have right. to talk more about it, of course, probably, as we all do. Back on as we all too need long. To. Happy That's to do time. that, guys. Enjoyed it a lot. Thank you <laughs> very much for talking to us. No problem. Cheers. Well, okay, so now on to next week then. Yes. Uh, what are we coming on to next week? Well, business ethics. Ah, there's, uh, a, there's an interesting oxymoron, some people might Sometimes, say. yes. Well, for example, we've had the chief executive of uh, NatWest yes. resigning over the whole uh, Coots Bank uh, fiasco with issue. Nigel Farage. Yeah. But it has shown up a big area. You know, to what extent should businesses have to deal with people that they think whose views don't chime with their own. I mean, shouldn't all these decisions be purely commercial decisions? I mean, should people be allowed to say, well, I'm not going to do business with you because I don't like you? Mm. I think it depends on whether you've got shareholders or not. So if you've got mm. shareholders, then the shareholders are going to be rather dissatisfied if you're not making decisions which are going to give them the best return. But I think mm. if you're a sort of like a mum and dad business and well, you uh, you yeah. have, you know, uh, perhaps, you know, perhaps uh, you've got views which are fairly conventional and you don't want to do business with unconventional people, for example. <laughs> you're you dancing know. around an issue here, well, I think. Well, well, whatever but it yes, might be. Yes, I think be. we all I mean, know. Say you're, cake making. Say, say you will, yes, yeah, say you're staunch Christian and you don't believe in gay marriage. Then mm. somebody comes to you and says, yeah, I want you to make a gay Could marriage. You force them. Game. You can't. Can you force them? I don't know. I mean, it also plays into this ESG. You mentioned shareholders. And shareholders now are very, many of them have been very keen on uh, this, uh, uh, these, these criteria, which mm. are outside the normal business, purely making money bottom line, but mm. ways in which they want a business in which they have invested money to behave. So how far 
should business be based on ethics as opposed to making money mm. and what are those ethics and you know how do you define them without using the word pronoun uh, we should probably come up in that conversation Some as well. I think we might be opening, gone mad. It could be a can of worms that we're opening next can week. Of wokery. Yeah, maybe. All yeah. right, so that's all coming up next week on, on the Wiker, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. The Y Curve.